Hey there, and welcome back to the Will and Rob Show. Uh, it is great to be with you guys. My name is Robert, and here with me, as always, my very good friend Will. Will, we're in our new office space uh, in Eastern Market. It's quite exciting to be here. Oh, it's a blast. It's a blast. Great office space. Would love to give anyone a tour if they'd be interested in having a look around, whether that's co-working, you want a single office, double office, four-person office, uh, just rent a conference room for the day. I mean, I'm really, really trying to pitch it to everybody right now. You really are. Um, uh, today, we've got a really fun interview teed up uh, with Dr. Scott Red of Reform Theological Seminary in Washington, um, which we're going to get to in a few minutes. Uh, Will, you, did you take Scott Red's classes? I took a preparation for ordination course, and it was him, Dr. Tommy Keene, and Dr. Peter Lee. So there were three of them teaching. Uh, it was supposed to be in person, but this was actually right before the pandemic, so they moved it online. And it was really just me and another guy uh, that had kind of this one-on-one -on -one time with them over Zoom to talk about ordination uh, minutia and whatnot. And I have just... I have a great amount of respect for him. I, I really enjoy his teaching. I've gotten to hear him teach, give a lecture before um, in a setting outside of seminary. So knowing how he thinks and how he, how he is able to articulate things and talk through things, I thought he'd be a fun person to come on. And he said yes to just sharing some of his thoughts. Yeah. Uh, as you guys will hear in the interview, Dr. Scott Red is the DC local, which is definitely different in this uh uh, town. A lot of people are come from other places. And so it's really cool to hear from the perspective of a guy uh, who's been here for a long time and really knows how DC operates. Um, also a guy who, who worked in DC uh, in the PR space before going to seminary and going into ministry and teaching. So I think his, his conversation on creation has a lot of great application points uh, that folks who work in government or work in DC will find really helpful. And so with that, we will go to the interview. I am very excited to have a very special guest with us today to talk about the doctrine of creation and what that means for our Christian lives. And so with us on the Will and Rob show, we have Dr. Scott Red. Uh, Dr. Red is the president and an associate professor of Old Testament at the Washington, D.C. campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. Uh, he has his Ph.D. from the Catholic University of, Mer uh, of America focusing on Semitic languages. And so um, we wanted to have him on and talk with us about uh, the, the, the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2 and what that shows us about understanding the world around us. But to get started, Dr. Red, just wanted to um, say you grew up in the D.C. area and then you worked for a media company uh, a PR firm, I believe, and then decided to go to seminary. So what was that process like? What was it like growing up in the DC area and then um, choosing to go into academics? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Will and Rob. Thanks for having me on too. It's great, great to be on with y'all. I, you know, so my background is kind of interesting. I'm a military kid. If, if you hang around DC long enough or other particular cities in the United States, you'll meet those kind of folk which mean that we moved around a lot, but because of my dad's, you know, vocational trajectory, um, he would typically get ships and then he'd come back to the Pentagon. Then he'd go get ships and then he'd come back to the Pentagon. So we have this, you know, we kind of say in our family, I don't, we don't really have a hometown, but if, if I had to claim one, it would be something like, it would be Washington DC because I was here 
every other two years or something like that. You know, that, that's kind of how it works. So I went to preschool here, elementary school, junior high and high school. And each of those times was perforated with being somewhere else, usually on a coastline somewhere. So growing up in DC was, was great. You know, by, from my experience, I I've lived all over the DC area. So we've lived in Springfield, Fairfax, Vienna, North, uh, Southeast DC, Bethesda, you know, kind of lived all over um, this whole metropolitan area and have always found it, you know, you guys know being up here, it's always, it's always been a compelling, interesting place to be. There's always interesting people here. Um, most people here are from somewhere else and they came here for a reason. And those kind of people are often interesting. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I think you, you never lack an interesting conversation. Um, there's, there's another aspect of DC that some people just hate. And it's this kind of this idea that once you get into the Northern Virginia, Southern Maryland, Washington area, that there's this kind of mantle of stress and anxiety that comes down on you. It's kind of pressure cooker that is the DC area. And we have had friends who have moved to the area and stay here for two years and are like, I've got to get out. I've got to get back to California or wherever, wherever I came from, you know, and we get that though, you know, for both my wife and I, we just don't, we don't, it, it's not that repulsive to us. We, we enjoy, we kind of like this thing. It's not that we like anxiety. Maybe we built up a tolerance to it or something. Um, but, you know, I, we, we really like it here. And it's, it's kind of a thing that you know, somebody said once said of Capitol Hill, you know, why do all these Capitol Hill staffers stay up on Capitol Hill when they're not making any money? And, you know, their job, they're working terrible hours and they work in this weird schedule of the legislative calendar. And somebody said, there's something that happens in Capitol Hill that doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. And that's why I keep getting drawn back to it. And I kind of feel that way about Washington. There's something going on in Washington that's just unlike anywhere else in the world. Maybe you experience it in London or some other kind of international political hubs. But um, yeah, we've just, I've just loved it. I've loved being here. And so I stayed here after college. And uh, as you said, we can talk, talk a little bit about that, but um, came up here after graduating from William and Mary and went into public relations because I wanted to kind of be a part of this whole thing. Well, you mentioned, you said we, and then you, you alluded to your wife, Jennifer, who I can't believe I didn't mention because no offense, but she's arguably your better half. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and it's a short argument. <laughs> There's no need for deliberation here. And then you have five <laughs> daughters as well. And so yeah. when you talk about wanting to stay in Washington, I mean, this is maybe taking us a little field, but you know, that's a lot to manage in a place that is as densely populated and so much is going on. And so for you to say that you love it or just attract it, I think is a strong testimony to y'all's marriage and family and um, a good encouragement, I think, to, to people who would want to stay in this area and have a family as well. Yeah, there, there are sacrifices, I guess. Like, I think we, we bought a house much later than all of our peers because, as you know, this, this housing market up here is not one easily you easily get into. Um, but at the same time, yeah, I don't, I, I look around at the experiences and the people that my daughters get to know, and it's just wonderful. It's just a wonderful gift. And um, you have to be mindful of it because like anywhere, places have their strengths and weaknesses. But um, yeah, we really give thanks for being able to be in this area. 
Um, so you mentioned after college, uh, you kind of got the itch to come up to DC, do the, or come back to DC, do the DC thing. Um, so talk to us a little bit about how that process went from going to, you know, doing PR, media consulting, uh, to being drawn into seminary and uh, theology. Yeah, it's, I wish I could say I had this grand vision for my life in undergrad that, that led to all of this, but as you all know, that that's really the case. And when you have a grand vision, it usually doesn't last a year out of college. Um, but one thing, my big vision was I wanted to write. And I only knew of one job where you could get paid to write, which was journalism. And so after college, I kind of did a, a, did a period of time in Colorado with some friends and just lived out there and hiked a lot and did all that stuff. And then came back here and I just started applying for journalism jobs, thinking that was it. That was my, my career path. And um, I actually came down to a moment. I got, um, while, while I was doing those, you know, going kind of, you know, beating the sidewalk, you know, uh, do, applying for jobs. This is in 97, 1997. Um, I, uh, I also learned that there's another job that you can get paid writing for, and that's public relations. And I got offered a public relations job and a journalism job, I think, within the same 24-hour period. And so I also got to compare the kind of payment, you know, the kind of compensation you get from those two different jobs and realize that public relations paid much better than journalism. And I have some, I had some school debt. Um, and so that, that made that a no-brainer. So I went into, just for this kind of haphazard reason, went into uh, crisis communications at um, I worked both at a local firm and then also at a think tank for a period of time and then went back to the firm. So I uh, got into crisis communications and we were doing everything from telecom to Iridium satellite phones to um, which are back around, by the way, they kind of disappeared for a while uh, after the tech bust, but this was right as the tech boom was happening. So it was like, our clients were like sun microsystems, you know, these kind of, you know, companies of the past um, and, and it was an exciting time. And I saw, I got to see my own writing showing up. I was ghostwriting often for people, but showing up in major newspapers. And it was a really exciting place to be. And we could have, you know, my wife and I, we were dating at the time. We, uh, we got married at the end of this period in 2000. Um, but we were, as we were getting closer to marriage and kind of thinking about what was going to happen next, um, she was working in National Geographic, which was about a block away from where I was. And so we would have lunch every day down in Northwest DC, you know, right around the National Geographic building. Her building was much more interesting than mine. And as we were kind of planning, we got engaged, you know, it became apparent that while I loved doing public relations and I loved writing and I loved the things we got to be a part of, um, we were both feeling drawn to something else. And, and for me, it was, I was going home and reading at the time, you know, this is, this is still relatively early in my theological study, but I was reading Jonathan Edwards and Spurgeon, you know, on the, in the evenings. <laughs> and I realized that's not normal. No one, no one does that, you know, with their free time. And so I talked to my pastor and some other you know, Christian men and women who I really respected. And people said, you know, you should think about seminary. And so I, I took my first class here at RTS Washington, the Form Theological Seminary in Washington. Back then it was meeting up in Bethesda and uh, didn't have a full MDiv. So I took a class, History of Philosophy and Christian Thought, and just fell in love with it. And 
decided I wanted to go ahead and do an MDiv down in um, down at RTS Orlando. And I still wasn't quite sure, was I going to be a pastor? Was I going to be a teacher? Was I going to go back into journalism in some way? This was kind of the rise of Marvin Alasky and World Magazine back then. So there's a lot of talk about that kind of thing, sort of thinking vocationally about your call. Um, but I'd say within about a year, it became clear that I felt either to teach scripture within a church setting or to teach scripture in some other setting like a seminary. So that, that's, that was that kind of three-year process out of undergrad. And then you chose, after you finished your MDiv, uh, to do a PhD in Hebrew studies. Mm -hmm. Is that, was that the correct Semitic language that you did? Yes. Yeah. So it was actually Semitic language and literature, which technically is kind of a Northwest Semitic degree. So you don't just do Hebrew, you do Aramaic and different level, you know, forms of Aramaic and Ugaritic. You study a little Akkadian. So ours was a very comparative language and text program. And I say ours now, I'm talking about my colleague, Dr. Peter Lee. <laughs> who, for some reason, whenever I talk about this, I'm talking about the two of us having gone because that's where we met. Um, but that's where I went to Catholic University. And uh, Dr. Peter Lee was there and um, uh, who also teaches Old Testament with me so here. For, for amateurs in Hebrew or whatever is below amateurs like myself and uh, <laughs> people who have never studied it, it is a difficult language to, uh, to master. I mean, it is, a, it is a very, very different in many ways from, well, from English. And so th that's not the easiest way to go about getting a PhD. So what was it about Hebrew that attracted you to, uh, to that intensive level of study? Yeah, if you look for a connection with what I've just told you, you remember, go back to the writing thing. I was an English major. I loved literature. I loved writing. I loved reading about and thinking about writing. And when I got to my um, MDiv, I had some professors like Dr. Mark Futado, uh, Dr. Bruce Walkey, and Dr. Richard Pratt, all of whom were very literary in their focus reading the Bible as literature, not merely as sort of a mine for systematic theology, but as a text that's given literarily, that is beautiful, it is compelling, and really looking for some of the avenues of interpretation that, that are provided through literary approach, the literary approach to scripture. And each of them were very clear, if you want to do this kind of thing, and I was very energized by it, still thinking I'd go into the pastorate afterwards, you know, um, they said, if you want to do this kind of thing, you really need to go get a, you know, what you might call a technical degree. You know, in other words, don't go and study a bunch of 20th century theologians and their work on the Bible, go study the biblical text and the writings of the people who are writing and, you know, the world around that time of the biblical text. And um, there's only a few programs that really do that kind of thing that are kind of traditional, um, Semitic programs and uh, Catholic University was one. And it was also back up here in DC, as I mentioned, you know, so we got to be back home and our home church, which was Fourth Presbyterian Church in Bethesda was here. We were a growing family and my parents lived here at the time. And so um, all of that kind of fit together and Catholic was a very natural place to go. And then after I got there, I just, just really fell in love with the program with the professors there. The first time I heard you speak, so I didn't have the fortunate opportunity of taking any classes from you at RTS DC when I was finishing up, but you spoke at the Trinity Forum up here in DC. 
and you spoke right, right. On, on Hebrew poetry specifically. And yeah, that was right. That was, uh, I was uh, uh, responding to Dana Joya who gave an excellent discussion of poetry in general. And then I kind of talked about Hebrew poetry as an aside. Well, I think that was actually then if, if that's right, that was the first Trinity forum I ever went to. Oh, wow. Was, uh, it was shortly after I moved up here. And uh, yeah, I remember he, he gave uh, his talk and had his uh, 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 poems and then you mm-hmm. followed up and spoke as well. So what is it specifically about the elements of Hebrew poetry that you love so much? And then how is that connected to Genesis 1 and 2? Again, with the, the idea of some people, you know, talk about Genesis 1 being poetry and then say something like, well, then we shouldn't take it too literally. How would you respond to that? And how would you read, encourage a reading of Genesis 1? And 2? Yeah, that's a really good question. So on the front end, so I got to Catholic University, I fell in with um, a very influential professor there at the time, a guy named Michael O'Connor. Uh, if there are already seminarians listening here, then they've, they've maybe read the Intro to Hebrew Syntax by Bruce Walkey and Michael O'Connor. Um, and so there's kind of a nice connection there. Bruce Walkey had done a lot of work on poetics and poetic you know, approaches to poetry. And so um, as I delved into that whole topic, and there's really a cottage industry on, you know, in, in Old Testament studies around trying to discern what is Hebrew poetry, because it's not exactly clear what it is. It's not exactly clear, um, you know, what the structure of it is. When we look at English poetry, for instance, you know, you can, you can talk about something like a, an English blank verse, which is iambic pentameter to the English majors listening, you know, but think about, you know, uh, shall I compare thee to a summer's day, right? It's five syllabic it's five it's five feet as it's called you know um and each one has this kind of beat so shall i compare the two a summer's day that's the pentameter part of it and the ims are the are the basis of that little shall i compare the two in any case um you can do that with a lot of literature but you it's hard to do that with hebrew and it's partly because we don't have any hebrew poets standing around who can tell us what they were doing Secondarily, um, this is a this is really a, an approach that was largely based out of a kind of oral culture, and it's not that people couldn't read. As a matter of fact, literacy in the in ancient Israel seems to have been quite impressive. Um, but the materials that you required to have scrolls and later codices around um, were quite expensive, and so people would say things in a way that they could remember them so that they could produce them in multiple towns. You know, you have people speaking in multiple areas, probably gave, giving the same sermons in different places. Um, and also you want people to be able to memorize them and remember them. And that is something that's kind of innate and unique to poetry. Poetry is a thing that is often given in a, um, in a context where people need to remember it and, and it needs to compel them. The earliest literature that we have in human literature is poetry. It's, uh, I mean, that's when I say literature, I mean artful things. The earliest writing we have is almost across the board receipts. People write receipts. So you can imagine why, you know, you want to know if you got enough, if you got the right amount of fish for the barley that you traded. Um, but when people start writing in an artful way, it's, it's going to be poetry and it's going to be usually religious of some kind because it, it, it matters. It's about the things of this world. It's about how you ought to live your life, what you ought to think about the world around you. 
And so people say things in a certain way. And in Hebrew poetry, that there's something happening. That's part of what my dissertation was about. I, I'm arguing that clearly in Hebrew poetry, the poet is doing something different than he or she is doing when writing prose. And I, I try to point at some of the ways that we can decipher a difference. In other words, there are certain things you can say in Hebrew poetry that you can't say in regular Hebrew. And it's, it's analogous to, you know, in English, if someone were to say to you, shall I compare thee to a summer's day, you'd say, there's something going on there, okay? I don't know quite what. And then as soon as they say, shall I compare thee to a summer's day, rough winds dust shake the darling buds of May, then you go, okay, now I know something's going on, right? You're doing a little, you're speaking on a different register. And the same thing happens in the Bible. And you can discern it, even though the text doesn't tell us that there's a difference. You can just tell by the way they're talking that something else is going on. And then that, to go to your question about Genesis 1, it raises the question, okay, so is this poetry or not? Is this, is this poetry or is this some kind of prose? And, and I would have to say, um, it's, it's definitely prose. This does not have the hallmarks of poetry in it. There, there is one song, which is the song that God sings about um, humanity, when it says, you know, or, or that the, uh, the author sings about humanity, about being made in the image of God. But the rest of it is pretty much Hebrew prose. However, and this is to kind of the point about whether or not we should read this literally or not, so bear with me, it is prose, it is regular narrative writing, and yet it is a very highly stylized writing, okay? So you can have books you can read a book by John Grisham, not very stylized, right? Or Tom Clancy, because, you know, we're in D.C. So after all. So, you know, so you can read some Tom Clancy, not very stylized. Then you, you can then go read, you know, um, uh, you know, some other kind of I just finished a book by an author, uh, David Mitchell, a really excellent, excellent writer. Um, and he is he's much more stylized than a Tom Clancy or a John Grisham. Right. He's got just beautiful metaphor. It's 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 a it's a it's a more sort of ornate writing, uh, and yet not so much that it's not good. You know, so Genesis one is like that. Genesis is a very stylized. Genesis one is a very stylized prosaic writing, okay, or you know, or prose writing. So when I hear people say, and I've heard some prominent people say, "Well, this is poetry," I think, "Well, no, it's not poetry." But that you, you can still make the argument you want to make, which is that it's stylized, and therefore we have to ask ourselves, as we do with every text, okay, is this meant to be read literally? Is it meant to be read figuratively, like a vision sequence or something like that? We get those in the Bible too. You get vision sequences that are clearly meant to be read symbolically. Um, and then there's actually a more technical question, which is even if we're reading it literally, um, with what level of precision are we supposed to read it literally, right? Um, I can say literally that I woke up with the sunrise today, and yet I'm not speaking with a scientific precision, right? Because we all know it's not really a sunrise, okay? That the earth is actually rotating, and that's why the sun's coming up on the horizon. So there's a question about being literal, and then to what level of precision should we consider the text to be written? And that's really, really where you have to look for cues and clues, um, in the text itself. In line with that, then yeah. this highly stylized writing and, uh, you know, an author that I think about in this light is, um, like Cormac McCarthy in the road yeah. or blood Meridian and 
he might be fitting in that he is compared to like rights and blood meridian specifically as like a very stylized yeah highly stylized king james version-esque biblical scale and scope of things and there's clearly something that he's doing beyond just telling a story there's clearly Mm -hmm. a uh while he might resist moral uh, moralizing, there is certainly some kind of a moral tale being told here. And so right. I guess with that, you know, what then is the author of Genesis and, and God speaking through that author trying to communicate to us about the world that the universe that he created? What do you think that and this is a huge question, I mean, the amount of ink that has been written just over uh, in the beginning, uh, you know, is immense. So maybe, and, and as we tie this to public policy as well, but what do you think is the the message that God is trying to get to his people and how he describes Genesis 1 and 2? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, that, that, that's a really good question. And one of the things we talk about a lot here at the seminary is you know, be able to sort of grab the big idea. What's what's the big idea of a text? Doesn't mean the text isn't saying more than that, but but what is the main message? And I think what you're seeing here in Genesis one and two, and and really it's a setup for everything that's going to come throughout the rest of Genesis, and then the rest of the Bible in many ways. Right? This is kind of the big prologue to set up the setting. But the Bible tells us pretty early on what, what, is, what this is about, and this is about God creating the heavens and the earth, and the problem, which is that the heavens and the earth are formless and void. And that sets the stage for everything that's going to come after. Uh, in a way, it kind of sets up what in, in theology circles we call like an eschatology. There, there's a kind of creational eschatology. And what is the eschatology? It's that God will form and fill will create the heavens and the earth. That is what he's doing. And we get a lot more meat on the bones of that eschatology, but in a way, that's kind of what the Bible's about, okay? You know, it's about God bringing this this end result to bear in the world, and there's all kinds of intrigue and and, uh, and setbacks and, and movements forward that happen as a result of that. But I think Genesis 1 sets the stage for that, that in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. It's formless and void. And so he goes about the work of forming it and filling it. Right. Um, and I think we can all agree on that across the board. As you, as you mentioned, there's been a lot of ink spilled on how to interpret, for instance, the days of creation. And that's an interesting discussion. And, you know, if anyone wants to dig into that really deeply, I'd point them to the, the white paper that the Presbyterian Church in America put out on that. I think it's very helpful. Uh, a lot of RTS hands were involved in that. Uh, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church also has a similar white paper. Um, all of these can be found for free online, and they kind of work through the different, you know, 24-hour day framework, analogical, day-age view type, type positions. Um, but one thing we can all agree on is that God who is separate from creation, who is over and against creation, uh, uh, the creator to creation, which gives him a unique relationship to everything else, which is why as theologians, even people like Aquinas say the study of theology, the study of God and everything in relationship to him, right? Because that at the end of the day is, is, the, is what everything is. It's either God or it's things that are related to God. But it's not creation and things related to creation, right? That's, that's the biblical worldview, that there is God and he is distinct 
and over creation. And creation is the system that he has made. He's not within the system. He's not bound by the system. Uh, like the Greeks would have told us, right? He's not within this, this power structure and kind of interacting with history and time and space like we are, because he is creator to the creation. And he's made it for a purpose. And that purpose, as we see in Genesis 1 and 2, is to be filled and formed, particularly filmed with filled rather with his images, with those who reflect his glory. And so he wants this creation to be a theater to use Calvin's phrase, a theater of his glory, right? Where we are made as humans to go respond and reflect worship to him. Now, of course, the fall puts all of that into, uh, uh, puts all that at risk and creates the groundwork for what most of the biblical text is, is talking about, which is how is God going to fulfill this duty of filling the earth with images of God worshiping him? filling it with his glory. And how is he going to do that in light of the fall? And that's the plan and project of redemption that we see worked out over the course of salvation history. So, um, I mean, I think these passages, you can't understate the importance of these early chapters in the Bible. Um, and they set the stage for everything that's going to come afterwards. And really it, it's hard to even undermine. You're, you're talking about um, Chris Watkin. I think he does a great job of really explaining how, incredibly influential this should be on the thought process of the Christian in the world today, that our world was made by a God who is good and is distinct from it and is personal and is building it for his glory. That really affects everything we do and say and believe in this world. What are some of those, um, those maybe we want to call them critiques of contemporary society that creation wanted to give us. I know the, the idea of a personal God um, definitely sort of uh, strikes at a lot of the um, agnostic tendencies of contemporary society, but mm -hmm. you, you're talking about filling and forming. I feel like that forming part is really um, yeah. relevant for people because they want to know, well, what is that? What does that mean to be part of, of forming um, God's creation according to his will. And I think that's particularly relevant to people who work in DC and who work in the realm of public policy. Yep. Um, so maybe could you speak in, a little bit into that? Yeah, th that's, that's great. There's, I mean, one, one thing here, um, we'll start with the, with the, the side in terms of God's character. Um, I, I think a lot of Christians forget and, and it comes out in their, in their social media posts or in their conversations about the world and the state of the world today, I think we can forget the, the character of the God of the Bible. That, that again, he's not, he's not stuck within this system trying to kind of you know, reform it in light of all the parameters that we have around us or something. But if you look at the God of the Bible and the things that he does, I mean, even look at the flood narrative, look at the Exodus narrative, look at the things that he does in the life of Israel, of course, look at Christ, look at the resurrection, first and foremost, perhaps. You know, the God of the Bible is a God who is so great and so wondrous and so powerful um, that there is really nothing outside of his purview. And, and Christians need to live in light of that with that kind of hope, even if it's not going the way you want it to go, which is often... Of course, where our strain, where the stress is coming from here in the D.C. area, right? It doesn't go the way you want it to go. And yet remember that God is sovereign 
and and, uh, and, and and this world is the theater of his glory. And that's why the the prophets and the apostles can say things like all things are being worked together for good and that God is ordaining whatsoever comes to pass. And yet, okay, to the next point, how wonderful and dignifying it is of humanity that we've been put in a situation where we participate in that work by being image bearers, right? And, and I think you're absolutely right, um, Rob, that this, this idea of, of, of us being image bearers and being a part of or in the process of forming and filling the earth that is given to Adam and Eve. And then it's also, remember, reinstated under Noah. So we can, it's not like this is ended at the fall or something. We're still called to do this. And you might even say it's something that's built into the human DNA to be a, an image bearer. Um, and that means that, I mean, you see this as a, as, a, as a parent when you're raising your children and you see them doing something like, a, like building something with blocks, right? And then it falls over and they cry. And you have to ask yourself, why is it? Why is it that even little children get frustrated when their attempts at bringing order to the world are frustrated, right? We often think of little children as causes of chaos in the world, but actually they themselves, right, have their own their own interests in bringing about order and flourishing. So even with children, there's this desire to form the earth. And I think that's something that comes out in all human vocation. This is ultimately what we're called to do. This is why, uh, so let, me, let me even say, even, even the non-believer finds meaning and dignity in the work that they're doing because there is a sense in which as an image bearer of God, they are bringing form an order to the world, whether that's as a, uh, you know, someone on, you know, working on the line in a factory or someone who's serving in military service, uh, someone who's, a, who's at work in politics and legislation, you're trying to bring order to the world around you, Lord willing, right? Lord willing. And of course, that's one of the ways we can evaluate our jobs and our performances. Are we bringing order or are we being agents of chaos, you know? And uh, we want to be bringing order. We want to be increasing flourishing. And I don't think that just means farming, obviously. That doesn't just mean um, agriculture, as it might back in. That is the most pressing need, I think, in Adam and Eve's day. Um, but that can mean things like teaching. You know, when you know, I, I joke around sometimes in class, because of my moving around from town to town, I had a very diverse uh, public school education in high school. And I never actually got to calculus. I never got to calculus. And I, you know, when I'm reading a book, you know, like a Alvin Plantinga and he starts pulling out sigmas to illustrate a point. I don't know. I have no idea what he's doing, you know, cause I never got that far in math. In, in my mind, math or calculus is, is chaos. It's formless and void. Right. And if I were to sit in a class where someone taught me calculus it would be like forming and filling. It would be like tilling the fields of my brain so that it can now produce an understanding of calculus. You know, So I think this is true, not just in sort of the work of our hands, but this is true in the work of things like teaching or legislation, right? When you're trying to come up with laws that bring about um, uh, opportunities to flourish and for fairness and justice to go forward. This is, this is good Genesis 1 application of what we're called to do as humans. And so obviously a place like DC gives us a lot of opportunity um, to, to, to form and to fill 
hopefully in a way that really benefits at a very kind of disproportionately large way. It really benefits a nation and sometimes a, a whole, the whole world. You mentioned feeling informing and this distinction between the creator and creation. And I just finished leading a Bible study through John 21. And there's the great, beautiful grandfatherly ending where he says, I suppose the world itself couldn't contain all the books that were written. And I've yeah. always taken that as like a, you know, like grandfatherly statement. D.A. Carson makes the point though, that when we consider the work that Jesus has done, when we consider the fact that he is filling the, the theater of creation with his glory, mm-hmm. then it is in fact true that the whole universe even is not big enough to contain yeah. the works that he has done and is doing. And, um, and with that is the personal justification that we experience as believers and then sanctification that continues throughout our lives. And then there is also like the ethical moral um, side of things. And I guess what is, how are we to think of those in connection? How are we to think of our good works and loving our neighbor as part of filling the world and as part of our sanctification as well? Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. So the the creation theology that you see set up in Genesis one and two, interestingly, gets thread throughout the rest of salvation history. You really see it show up in the prophets and in wisdom literature in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, so on the wisdom literature side of it, you you, you have these passages um, throughout Proverbs, for instance, where you'll see the, the sage saying things like, go to the ant, you sluggard, and you know, look at her industriousness and repent for your laziness, right? And the idea there is that creation actually is, is reflective in a way of the creator, okay? Paul says his invisible attributes are there for all to see in creation. Um, in Proverbs, actually, when he describes the forming of creation and lady wisdom, remember there's this, there's this analogy between uh, a, a folly being a, a woman who is who, who tempts you into her house. But once you get into her house, it's like a slasher flick. It says, it says her, her stairs lead down to Sheol. Okay. And then you've got lady wisdom. She invites you into her house, but her house is filled with feast foods and, and wealth and much and many And then Lady Wisdom has this kind of monologue where she reflects on her role in creation. And she is depicted as either a craftsman or a little girl. And I actually think the second one, little girl, fits better with the context. Who's cherishing and delighting in and celebrating creation. The idea is it's almost as if her character is being woven into the world around us. So you can go look at uh, an ant and learn about God's wisdom. You can go look at a a lizard on a rock, right? The things that you see in Proverbs or a ship on the sea, and you can learn about God's creation. And the idea is that his fingerprints are kind of all over the world around us. And we can see his glory or to use Paul's language, his invisible attributes and rejoice in that. Um, You see it show up in the prophets in another interesting way. And that creation is also, in, in a sense, bearing witness to God's original creative plan. You remember in, back, back here in Genesis where he creates the world and he says it's good. And it's interesting, he never rescinds that judgment even after the fall. That creation is still good, but it's now under the burden of the curse. 
And so in the prophets, whenever God is bringing his people into court for their moral failing, um, for their idolatry or their syncretism or their oppression of the poor and the disenfranchised, it's interesting when he does it, uh, when the court is called into session, um, uh, you'll find this in places like Micah 6, you know, where you have a clear, really clear uh, legal scenario. Uh, the jury is called and, you know, you can't call like Egypt. You know, Egypt can't bear witness between God and his people. You know, the Bene Amon, the Ammonites can't bear witness, but who can? The mountains can in the valleys. You know, creation is called in to bear witness about God's people and how they're acting and living. And if you kind of follow this logic that this is, this is a part of creation yearning for and looking forward towards its burden or the curse that we've put on it as humans being lifted. And this is why creation yearns like a woman in labor, says Paul, for the revelation of the sons of God, you know, that she's longing to be freed out from under this burden. And until then, she's both a witness to God's glory and his character, and she's also um, kind of a witness against us, right? So in other words, okay, to tie to your question, um, when we're thinking about our sanctification, I think we often think about, okay, look, the Lord's justified me. He's adopted me. I've been, I've been made regenerate through effectual calling. Uh, I'm not as good as I'd like to be, but I'm better than I was, all that kind of stuff. It's all very individual and me and God which is good. There's nothing wrong with that. And yet at the same time, I, I think we can sometimes lose the connection that our sanctification is also a relief. It should bring us into harmony with creation. We should be mindful of creation as we're growing in our sanctification. Are we being good and just redeemed images of God who've been called to be you know, vice regents, as it were, kind of serving under the creator king and the tending to creation? Um, and that's something I think we don't, we don't often think about a whole lot. It doesn't really make a lot of sense, maybe in a post enlightenment world, we don't like thinking of creation in that way, but the Bible does. And, uh, and maybe we should be challenged in thinking about that way too. All the ways Francis Bacon has impacted our <laughs> thinking. And, uh, well, thank you so yeah. much, Dr. Ed. You, uh, you know, you, you mentioned that the personal elements of our faith, which are important. Yes. But um, God has given us clear means to experience his grace. And that is in the world he's created, in the church he has called, in the sacraments, in the reading of the word and, and hearing it preached. Um, and I, I think with that, I think there's probably an important, especially for evangelicals, those of us who grew up in the evangelical world, to maybe flip our understanding a little bit of what does piety actually mean. Um, yeah. In that I think for many of us, there's a thought that missing a quiet time is probably worse than missing a church service. Mm. And yeah. I don't think that's an uncommon sentiment, uh, but I do think it's unfortunate. Yeah. When we think about what you're saying with the doctrine of creation and how it's given to us and what it can attest to and does, it I think shifts us towards that. Again, Genesis 1-2 is not about creation, but about God and him filling that. Yeah. And, and that's a good point. You know, I'm, I'm looking out my window at trees. And when I, when I think about creation, I often think about trees and mountains or something. And we have to remember the creation is it's, it's, um, it's much more broad than just nat nature. Right. Um, 
and I think that's even been tested over the last year with the pandemic and people not being able to worship together. I, I, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, yeah, it's going to be really hard to, to get back together again. I kind of like doing this alone on my computer screen or sitting on my couch. And, you know, there is a kind of anti-creation <laughs> sentiment there, you know, which we have to be mindful of. You're right. There's a thing about gathering together. We've been made. Creation includes our bodies. We've been made to be together. We've been made to share. Of course, there are, there are times in life when we can't. There's going to be these seasons, but we should always be longing to be back together again. This isn't just a, a sort of abstract spiritual meditation on my part. This is about actually being out there in the creation that God has made and, and um activating that, you know, that aspect of my life. And I think with technology and things, which are great and have brought all these incredible, incredible, uh, you know, advancements for us and for humanity, um, there's going to be this increasing stress test, I think, put on our relationship with creation. You know, um, are we, are, are we going to be able to still actively engage in the world around us? Or is there going to be this constant pull to go inward and to become abstract and to become more virtual? And I say that with the, with the footnote that I realize that also the virtual world is also creation. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard, isn't it? It's, it's interesting being a Christian and all the complexities that we have to deal with in the world today. It is. It is. You mentioned technology and creation, and I would be uh, remiss if I didn't mention that you've had some technologically uh, uh, well informed or, or, or mediated um, projects over this past year. Yeah, we, um, so a couple of things came out of this, you know, you never, you don't want to lose an opportunity to try some new things. And, and with the lockdown um, we did, one of the things we did is we, we, we made it possible for students who couldn't be on campus, particularly during the heavier periods of lockdown to take classes via you know, Zoom or some other kind of, you know, internet provider. And um, it was, uh, you know, that, that was a great, that was really a great thing. It kind of freed up some of our students who were far away to participate in classes more, to take a higher level. And that, that was excellent. Um, we're now trying to figure out, okay, how do we incorporate that in the, in the years ahead when we won't be in lockdown, Lord willing, um, but are there some ways that we can do this to better serve our student body? Um, and then the second thing that we did that was really a big change is that we'd been talking about doing a podcast as a faculty for a long time and um, hadn't really had the, I guess, the, 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 the instigating factor <laughs> to do that. And so when this finally came, came up and, and we went into lockdown in mid-March last year, we realized we're not going to be able to see these students who we're usually talking to in the classroom and in the hallways. So how about we start a podcast and you know, as a faculty, we'll get together every week and we'll talk through theological issues. We'll look at uh, things that are happening in the news and just approach them as, as seminary professors. And it will be a way for us to keep in touch with our, with our students. And it has actually become one of my favorite hour and a half, you know, assignments of the week is that I sit down with uh, Peter Lee and Grace Sutanto and Tommy Keen and Paul Jean and all of the guests that we get to bring on and um, just chat for an hour and a half, like we, like we are doing right now. And I've just loved it. And it's also grown. We've got a considerable listenership, both within our student body and outside of it. 
And uh, so I'd encourage anybody who's interested, look up the, the faculty podcast from Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington on your favorite uh, podcast provider. And that's what it's called, the faculty podcast? It's called the faculty. Yeah, we decided just to go big. You know, we're just the faculty. We're everyone's faculty. Oh, <laughs> I wanted the faculty lounge, but somebody had already taken that in a, in a totally unrelated podcast. So Shame in, a, in a moment of creativity, I just dropped the lounge and left it as the faculty. There you go. <laughs> well, uh, Dr. Red, thank you so much. I, I do want to ask though, uh, favorite contemporary poets. Oh man, favorite contemporary. So if you'd ask just writers, it would be probably right now, David Mitchell. So I'm going to fudge and go over that. He doesn't write poetry though. He has written some in his books. Um, his book, the 10,000 autumns of Jacob DeZote. I started reading it years ago and then something disrupted it. And I came back to it just finished it actually last week. And he is still, I think, David Mitchell, I think one of the, one of the best writers today. I think he's excellent. In terms of um, modern poets, Dana Joya, who you mentioned earlier, um, is, is excellent. He's um, uh, the poet laureate of the state of California, a Catholic writer. Um, and I, I've just really enjoyed getting to know his poetry more over the last few years. Billy Collins, of course, is everyone's favorite. He writes in The New Yorker a good bit. I just picked up a, a book of his earlier in the winter. I guess it was snowing, so it wasn't just now. It was, it was a few months ago. But um, he's, you know, he's just, he's the kind of poet that um, if you're interested in poetry, he's engaging. And if you're sort of more casually just sort of picking up a book, you'll also enjoy it too, which is what I like about it. So he's the kind of, Billy Collins is the kind you can leave around the house and your kids may read a little bit. So there's, there's two offerings for right now. Well, yeah, I love both of those poets. And David Mitchell wrote Cloud Atlas, is that right? He wrote Cloud Atlas, yeah. Okay. And the book is much better than the movie. <laughs> Be careful saying that. Uh, the book is excellent. I mean, the book's incredible. It's a, it's a play on genre. It's like a nesting Russian nesting dolls doll of different genre. And it starts in one genre. It works itself into its middle and then it works itself back out. So you end up in the, in the you know, 18th century uh, journal of a sailor on a boat in the South Pacific. And it's the same place you started And the whole story is kind of interwoven throughout these, I think six different genres. It's just really, really incredible. Well, I have to add that to my list. I just started, um, Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro, who's one of my favorites. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, so in, um, uh, you know, David Mitchell's very influenced by Japanese writing and actually lived in Japan for a long time. Okay. And so um, uh, the, the, there will be some overlap there in style. So. Well, that's good to know. All right. Yeah. I'll have to, I will add that to my summer list. And uh, Thank you so much for coming on, Doctor. It was just a joy to be with you, and thanks for teaching and sharing and providing this great food for thought and and uh, ways to think through this world in which we live and God's calling for our lives. And don't forget to check out the Faculty uh, podcast with some great men, some really wonderful, very brilliant people. So check that out, and um, you can follow us on Twitter. I am at uh, Stockdale. Will Robert is at R D Hassler. Look forward to being with you all next week. Bye.